Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of him. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will bring, uh, begin to exalt you in the eyes of Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel and from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth, set foot into the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing of dry ground. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So it's pretty obvious that God can do anything, anytime, anywhere, any way that God chooses. Wouldn't you agree? And not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we know that even now, God can do anything, anywhere, anytime, any way that God chooses. And all we have to do is be willing to trust that. Just like Joshua did. Joshua was a guy who was deeply committed to giving it all over to God, to giving God 110%, as they say. Because he understood what we now know for sure to be true, which is, as Jesus put it, with God, nothing is impossible. And we have God on our side. And so, like Joshua, 
who is, by the way, a type of Christ. That's what we refer to in, uh, in, in terms of people who remind us of Jesus. Joshua, so much so that his name pronounced in Hebrew is Yeshua, which, by the way, is the same name of Jesus because Jesus is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew Yeshua. So there's one for you. He's more than just a type of Jesus. He's even carrying the same name as Jesus. And he is one who has a confidence in God that is unmatched in his time. In many ways, probably more so than even Moses, his beloved mentor. But he was a guy who shows us how it's done. Joshua is a guy who shows us how we live in confidence that God is God and God is at work and that God can do anything, anytime, anywhere, any way that God chooses. First of all, we see that his commitment is always visible. If you look at his whole life as it's described to us in the Bible, he's always the guy who's right there when anything important is happening, isn't he? He's always right there. You know how they'll say, well, every time those church doors are open, old so-and-so is there. Well, that would have been Joshua. Every time old Mo said God's calling, Joshua was right there. So at the tent of meeting, who attended to Moses' needs? Joshua. Up on Mount Sinai when Moses disappeared for a long time. You remember that day? That's when he got that heavenly suntan. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then that's just not funny. Read Exodus. Moses came down from the mountain and he was glowing. And it scared everybody. And uh, Joshua was there. What did he do up there? 40 days and 40 nights. Did he, just, did he just sit on the edge of a cliff or a ledge and dangle his feet for 40 days waiting for Moses? Did he look down in the valley at the people living in the encampment where all the creature comforts were and say, gosh, wish I was down there. What are they cooking tonight? Sure smells good. I don't know. But the scripture says he stayed up there right at Moses' side, right where the action was, where Moses and God were interacting. And isn't it amazing that he was so faithful in that moment, in that day, in those hours of, of waiting, when for him, the very expression of that faith wouldn't really be known until the moment we just read about in Joshua chapter 3. See, it was a little less than 40 years later when they finally entered into the promised land. It was a little less than 40 years after Joshua and Moses heard what the promise was and how it was going to be fulfilled that they actually got to see the promise fulfilled and there with limitations. Moses seeing it from a distance but not being permitted to go into the promised land and Joshua having to wait for 40 years for all of the unfaithful to die off. You remember his story? Do you remember how Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies whose names we don't remember 
all went into the promised land after they left Egypt to spy out the land and all but two of them came back and said, there's giants in there. Those people have scary big fortresses and things. We'd be nuts to go in there. And Joshua and Caleb looked at Moses and said, yeah, we can take them. God's on our side. How can we fail? And so because of the lack of faith on the part of the 10 and their kind, the people were allowed to wander in the wilderness for about 38 years until enough of the unfaithful ones had died off. And that sort of ugly, faithless cowardice would be purged from the people. And honestly, just as an afterthought, what is cowardice if not just selfishness? You know, when a person says, I'm not going in there, they're taking care of their own hide. That's selfish. And everything that I've read in my Bible from the very first word to the very last says that this is all about selflessness, about emptying yourself and putting all your trust in God Joshua and Caleb didn't have a problem with that. And so 38 years later, when Joshua finds himself standing before the Jordan River, not just the usual Jordan River, but the swollen Jordan River. Now that the snow is melting and the ground is thawing, and if rain should come, you can imagine that our creeks and streams and rivers are going to start to swell around here. It's what they do. In fact, if there's some blockages of ice or some big hunks of snow somewhere in this water process, there will even be strange flooding things that happen because of the diversions caused, right? We understand what it's like to see a river the size of our small Potoka River flooded into something that is of great consequence to the people who are around it. This is what happened every year at the same time, in the Jordan, when the snows of Mount Hermon melt way up above the Sea of Galilee and that snow melt falls down the mountainside and fills the Sea of Galilee. And when the, when the spring rains and the summer, the monsoons come out there toward the Mediterranean and all those watersheds flow down to the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Once a year, it swells way beyond its banks and it becomes of grave consequence to the people around it. And you know what it's like when a river's flooded. You see all that brown water churning and surging past, and you see all that debris and junk floating down. You see whole trees going down the river, right? Can you imagine when... Joshua tells the leaders of the different tribes of this probably about two million people. We're crossing today or tomorrow. And they all look at him and say, are you crazy? Have you looked at the river? You, you couldn't do this three weeks ago when it was a crick? Well, I don't know if that's the Hebrew word for it, but... They waited until the water swelled and there was mud and churning torrents and all kinds of junk floating down the river. And that's when they decided to cross because that was God's plan. 
And so just like when they were thinking about entering the promised land, they looked out across the promised land. They saw the mighty fortress of Jericho and imagined there were others like it. And they saw the giants that had been hired to defend the fortresses. And they said, are you crazy? And we're going to find out when we go a little further in this study they're going to stand outside the walls of Jericho and God's going to bring down the walls, but the people have to accept that crazy stuff is something that God sort of specializes in. In fact, it might be that Joshua understood something better than most people in that he understood that the day when the river was at its worst was precisely the perfect day for God to do the miraculous. And perhaps that's the point, to witness to God's amazing power. Because sometimes the obstacles are there just so we don't have any delusional ideas about our own greatness. There's something to chew on. Moses had a problem during his lifetime. He liked to say things to God like, I can't do this. And God was patient with him, but then a couple of times he got pretty upset with Moses, and eventually it even cost Moses his trip into the promised land. Joshua doesn't seem to have that problem. He doesn't seem to have a problem with, I can't do this, because he never thinks that he can. And so the lesson we learned from Joshua is, is that one of his greatest leadership traits is, is that he understands that it's not about him. That he's a leader who recognizes that this isn't about him anyway. That he's really just the point man for God's plan. That he's just the guy who says, follow me, this is where we're going. God says it'll be okay and I believe it. I have said to people over the years, and I have to tell you the truth when I say it, I usually have a little bit of doubt in me when I say it, but I've told people a few times over the years, if you can't put your own faith into works, put faith in my faith. Well, that's kind of a bold and arrogant thing to say, but it's really just me saying, I'm scared too, but I'm going to risk it, so come with me. That's, that's it. You see, faith by definition and courage for that matter are this capacity to do the thing that doesn't make any sense. To see the giants but recognize that your God is bigger. To see the walls of Jericho but recognize your God is more powerful. And to see yourself as a subject of the king rather than the king or the queen. Joshua has this remarkable capacity to keep himself and obstacles in the right perspective. He prays, he listens, and he watches to see where God is at work. And then having accumulated a lot of faith experiences, he can go confidently toward the unknown, toward the fearful and frightening thing. 
he could face the obstacle, sort of amused and amazed that such audacity would dare to stand before the God of all creation. So what are the obstacles standing between you and experiencing God? So far, we've talked about getting ready to go where God is going, to see what God is doing, and now we want to get ready to experience what God is doing. And you really need to first learn to see where God is at work and to see what God is doing. And that's why we spent time last week talking about how you reconnoiter and listen and, and observe all of the things that demonstrate that God is at work. Once you can become accustomed to seeing how God operates, it's easy to see God at work. It's easy to recognize a God thing when it's happening. But if you're not accustomed to seeing this sort of thing, then you're probably going to look to that person or to that circumstance that seems way too big for you, and you're going to say, are you crazy? And the answer is, I'm crazy about the God of all creation who's got this. And I'm grateful for an obstacle so big that I don't have to toy with the idea that I can do this. And this is our goal. This is where our getting ready starts with our Jubilee Sabbath time of rest and observance. Because our challenge is that we would learn to see where God is at work and to start recognizing how God is taking hold of things and even how God has already dispatched some of those obstacles that we thought were insurmountable. Have you? Have you noticed? Can you make a record of these things? Maybe if you write one of those devotions, you'll write about that. Where have I seen God at work in the last year at Shiloh? How is it like a certain passage in Scripture? I challenge you to do that. Then you'll see, like Joshua, that the most important thing to do is just listen and observe and obey. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Now burn it upon the hearts of your people so that they might serve you completely in faith and courage and that you might be glorified, that you doing it will be obviously the thing. Amen. Amen.